If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, Not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. It wasn't just fire and plague that the English had to worry about in the 17th century. From fears of foreign invasion and Catholic insurgency to an unstable line of succession and an all-out civil war, This was an era characterised by insecurity and uncertainty. Claire Jackson examines these anxieties in her new book, Devil Land, which chronicles the turbulent century between 1588 and 1688. I spoke to her to find out more. In Devil Land, you look at England between 1588 and 1688. So why is this such a fascinating 100-year period of English history? I think it's... One of the most fascinating, if only because so much happens, you sometimes get a feeling that events are happening at quite dizzying speed, that even contemporaries are having difficulty sort of getting their heads around. And yet what I was trying to do through a lot of the book was actually almost put myself in that position to feel how it might seem to contemporaries, really to not know who might be on the throne, you know, this Mm. time next year, what sort of religious um, settlement might be in place. I mean, so much is precarious and so much is up for grabs um, so that the period opens with a a sort of prolonged 
submerged succession debate. Um, nobody is allowed to discuss who is going to succeed Elizabeth. And there are lots of potential contenders, all of whom bring their own dynastic and religious and confessional baggage with them. Uh, and again, that's a, a moment of great anxiety. Although we now know that Elizabeth lived, you know, till 1603, none of her Tudor predecessors had come into their 60s. So at any point in the 1580s, really from the Armada onwards, there's always a fear at that point that England might be plunged immediately into a great big continental war of succession. In the end, as we know, uh, James VI and I succeeds in 1603 peacefully. But he brings, again, a, a, a whole amount of vision for how he wishes to rule. He's seen by many as a foreign monarch. And really, so much happens in this long 17th century, as I sort of think of it, in terms of you know the constitutional makeup of Britain. James has very clear ideas about uniting England and Scotland. It is the period in which political union is achieved in 1707, just after the end of our period. Um, but that by that stage does not seem like a likely um, outcome. Uh, throughout all this period, um, there is fears about the, the protection or the preservation of a very young Protestant church. One of the themes of the book as well is just fears of imminent invasion. Um, that doesn't go away with the Armada. Um, th there are smaller Armadas in the 1590s, but there's a constant fear of uh, continental Europe really only being half a day's sail away or, or, or whatever. And you know, it, 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 this is also a sort of fast-changing geopolitical world, um, the Counter-Reformation is making large gains on the continent. Europe is swamped or convulsed by thir the Thirty Years' War in the first half of the century. And then England itself is plunged into one of its most bloody revolutions in the middle of the period um, that leads to public execution of its monarch, Charles I, and the only 11 years in our history when we've been a republic. And although, again, we tend to sort of look back on it as the interregnum, uh, so we think of it as a sort of an anomaly bookmark between two periods of Stuart monarchy, it wouldn't have seemed anything like as reassuringly secure as that to contemporaries. And the period ends with the foreign invasion, um, you know, with, with armed support from the Netherlands. So, you know, to me, it is, a, it is both a sort of fascinating, but also quite a terrifying hundred years in England's history. So what were some of the country's primary insecurities and anxieties in this age? So in 1588, England is a relatively young Protestant country. Um, it is one that many Protestants would regard as but halfly reformed. Its, its religious destiny isn't clear. Um, you know, there are plenty of uh, Puritan elements who, who wish to sort of pursue the Reformation um, more fully. But then there are also um, you know, very sort of entrenched remnants of the Catholic Church. In 1588, England is a country whose dynastic future is uncertain, to put it mildly. Uh, Elizabeth makes discussion of her successor a, a capital crime. Um, there are at least 10 or a dozen uh, claimants um, who would see a hereditary right, and they bring with them the opportunity for England to be re-Catholicised, or the, or the horror of this, depending on your viewpoint. And I think if you think geopolitically about England, at the, at the front of Devilland, we've, we've sort of got a map of um, really just the Channel area and Ireland. And one of the real fears of 17th century England is, is, is a territorial one, a real fear of Catholic encirclement. And that could come through the side door through Ireland. It could come through what's often called the back door through Scotland, which has traditionally had an alliance with, with um, France. Or it could come from, um, you know, the sort of central Europe as well. And 
you know, this sort of fear, and it's 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 absolutely there in the palpable panic of the Armada, this fear that um, the Isle of Wight or Margate or any of um, coastal ports might one day be a landing invasion, a landing site for an invasion is, is very palpable, especially as, you know, England doesn't have a standing army, that it relies on local militias um, and other forms of defence. Um, so ensuring that, you know, England can defend its interests is is something that can't be taken for granted in this period. So you you obviously cover a huge amount here in this book. And the book is called Devil Land. And I wanted to ask you about that title. Where does that name come from? It's what the Dutch uh, called England in the mid-17th century, Teufelland. Um, it was playing on the idea, there was a sort of medieval... Um, um, medieval belief that Englishmen had tails, um, and that was quite a well-known um, sort of folk um, concept. But also, by the mid-17th century, there were many who did think that the English had become devils. It was playing on a Latin pun of anglorum, um, that the English could be seen as um, angels, angelic. Now they were diablorum, um, they were devils, they were uh, regicidal rebels who'd overthrown their monarchy, publicly executed their king, and become, by the mid-17th century, you know, a real pariah state and one that also had quite aggressive foreign um, ambitions as well. So to the Dutch, uh, the English were Teufelland and England was Devilland. The foreign perspective is one that you, you draw on throughout the book, not only just in the title. And why do you think that that's so interesting? What do you think we can learn about 17th century England from looking at it as it was viewed by foreign powers? Um, I think it's it's often tempting to see ourselves as other seers, um, you know, in the phrase of um, Robert Burns. It it struck me really when I was working on the Stuarts documentaries that I made for the BBC. I began thinking of the Stuarts um, as a foreign dynasty, as an imported dynasty into England. Um, I mean, they were Scottish, um, but each Stuart monarch had uh, a foreign consort, um, whether it was Anna of Denmark, Henrietta Maria, Catherine of Braganza, uh, all of whom had their own confessional um, Catholic ties or foreign dynastic links. And None of them seemed very English. There was a lot about the Stuart century that doesn't seem traditionally English. And I I was interested in the ways in which the English might increasingly began to suspect the Stuarts as not being a dynasty that could be trusted always to act in England's national interests. I mean, I think you, you see that very powerfully, say, if you enter into um, you know, the decor of the banqueting house in Whitehall. You know, this looks like continental Baroque. Um, or, or thinking about um, Charles I when he was Prince of Wales, spending six months at the um, Spanish court in Madrid, sort of wooing the Infanta. There were just ways in which I wanted to think about England, 17th century England, as others, particularly foreign diplomats uh, who were there representing their monarch, um, might have perceived the 17th century English state. To pick up on your point about foreign diplomats and ambassadors, you, you use a lot of testimonies from ambassadors. What can you tell us about their role at the time and why they're such interesting observers to what was happening in England? Mm. So there isn't a professional um, consular service at this stage, but James, when he comes to the throne in 1603, is a monarch who's very used to having foreign rep diplomatic representation. I think when we think of Elizabethan England, we can often think of sort of isolationism. I mean, Elizabeth didn't maintain a diplomatic presence in any continental Catholic courts except France, whereas James in his Scottish court, that had always been a very sort of cosmopolitan court that was used to receiving foreign uh, envoys. And that only um, increased on a much larger scale once he became King of England. So 
it is very interesting um, at this period to think of ambassadors as sort of conduits for all sorts of, obviously, diplomatic negotiation um, and you know what we would, would standardly think of as the work of diplomats, but also much more, there's a whole language that's associated with um, international relations and diplomatic history of sort of soft power and cultural power. But these disciplines aren't so well worked in the 17th century. Um, but nevertheless, if one thinks about the ambassador as as they were seen as the literal personification of their monarch in that court, that then introduced a whole sort of range of ceremonial, sometimes disputes, but also sort of courtesies that had to be observed, opportunities for dynastic alliances. And, you know, again, what's new in 1603 for the English is that they have a royal family suddenly on the throne. James brings you know, two, two sons and a daughter who could all potentially be players in an international marriage market. So that throughout the period, I think diplomats offer exactly that sort of double vision. Their, their testimonies are infused with a, with, a, with a double vision. I mean, they do tell you a lot about how England is being perceived and what's absolutely happening on the ground, but inevitably it's a distorted vision because much of what an, a, a diplomat finds um, interesting or anxiety-inducing or alarming relates to very much their own state as well, and also how this relates to their mission and how their own ruler wishes them to promote their own country's interests in this often quite unstable and chaotic foreign court. And what were England's most significant foreign relations in this area, whether good or bad? Well, it, it, one of the interesting things about the period as well is the extent to which those alliances vary. And um, I mean, at some points, I think I describe it as sort of self-contradictory or um, you know, really quite impossible for other diplomats to fathom. You know, at one point, Charles II in the Restoration in the 1670s is receiving secret financial subsidies from Louis XIV's court at the same time as his parliament is voting to declare war on France. And, you know, either that's you know, sort of diplomatic ineptitude of the highest degree or it's a very sort of calculated stratagem of, you know, um, keeping various options open. And one of the dilemmas for 17th century England is um, how best to preserve Protestantism um, when potentially encircled by ranges of Catholic states, but also how to position oneself. I mean, the big superpowers are 17th century Spain and France, and, you know, whether an alliance with either of those is the correct route, although they're Catholic uh, countries, or whether an alliance with the Protestant Dutch makes confessional sense, but perhaps they're England's greatest commercial competitors. So it's a very fluctuating picture. And again, it's, it's complicated by the Stuarts' own confessional um, and dynastic allegiances. Mm. So I just want to return to something you said near the start um, of that conversation, where you said there was a real sense of fear, paranoia, continual crises, turbulence. Is that primarily how you would characterise the mood, as it were, in England across this period? Well, it's a partisan argument throughout the book. I mean, obviously, it's it's not uniformly like that every day. But, you know, there are sort of very identifiable components in a fear of popish encirclement or popish plot and that you know they, they begin with the the, the um the, the book begins with the execution of mary queen of scots by elizabeth uh the first um for fermenting catholic conspiracies uh and then that's followed very shortly by the armanda but then you know there's a whole series of popish plots whether it's guy fawkes's gunpowder plot or the irish rebellion in 1641 or the popish plot in the 1670s into which contemporaries can very readily see you know, recurrent manifestations. I think there is a sort of sense of 
a very young Protestant nation whose Protestantism is is constantly threatened, whether by its own rulers with their suspect Catholic proclivities and their Catholic spouses, or whether it's by a sort of internal fifth column at home, or, or whether it's by an aggressive neighbour like um, Louis XIV's France. But you know, there is plentiful scope for paranoia and fear, if one thinks about sort of a period like the mid-1660s when you know, England experiences um, or London experiences a huge plague and then um, you know, the, the large, one of the largest fires in its history, um, immediately blame for that fire at any rate is laid at the door of foreign Catholics. And it's Charles II who's saying, no, it's the wind. It's been a, it's been a, it's been a hot, dry summer. Um, but the readiness of, of contemporaries, I think, to fit everyday events into a larger narrative of um, either providential deliverance or near-Catholic uh, takeover is, is, is very striking. So those fears of a Catholic plot, at some points they were well-founded and at other points they were not. Is that fair to say? Yes. <laughs> and I think one of the other th- um, interesting themes of the period as well is the rise of news. Um, so this is the period in which you know, printed newspapers, as we would recognise them, start on the continent and then make their way into the British Isles. It's also the the heyday of sort of polemical pamphlet publishing. And some of this is news. We would recognise it. Some of it is fake news and and rumour and speculation. And some of it is people trying to work out which is which. And, you know, just even thinking about the the practicalities of communication, um, you know, this isn't, this is clearly a world in which much news arrives with certain delays. Um, people are trying to to get what is new, but then at the same time, the mood that that induces in people, always itching after what's new, is also worrying for people. It's a feeling that that's what's you know sort of um, encouraging this sense of paranoia and uncertainty. This new interest in news. And did that new interest in news mean that? these anxieties weren't just felt by kind of the the literary or the elite commentators. Do we have any sense of whether these anxieties also trickle down to mm. the ordinary people on the street, for example? Yes. I mean, if one thinks about London, um, which is one of the biggest cities in Europe, um, there's a very highly literate um, populace there. And this strikes foreign um, diplomats very forcibly that this seems to be a sort of city in which everybody wants to talk politics. You know, the watermen that row you across the Thames will have their own views on political crises of the day. But I think also out in what we might think of sort of as the provinces, you know, the parish is kind of anything but parochial. I mean, sermons are the main form of political information. And the numbers of prayers being offered, for example, for James VI and first daughter Elizabeth of Bohemia during the Thirty Years' War suggests that for many of, you know, England's congregations, the Thirty Years' War the fate of the Winter Queen, as she was known as, um, having been ejected from Bohemia. These are all very near and very real because they're being brought back through, being brought home to them through uh, sermons primarily from the pulpit, but also at local assizes or market crosses um, and other um, forms of oral communication primarily. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I think in 1688, nothing can be taken for certain. Um, you know, Mary provides some fig leaf of legitimacy for William's invasion, but when she dies, um, I don't think anybody would have underestimated Jacobite intentions or assassination plots thereafter. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. 
you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Obviously, there's going to be uh, immense change over this 100-year period, but I wondered if you could pick out any threads of continuity about the nature of governance and how you would characterise it. Would you characterise governance at the top level as chaotic and turbulent, or is it more events that surrounded it that made it so? I think there are some structural features. I mean, one thing the Stuarts really struggle with is a lack of crown finance. I mean, for all of the language of uh, James VI and first, for example, leading some great Protestant crusade on the continent, he doesn't have the resources to do it. And successive parliaments are quite reluctant to vote the sort of sums of money that would be required, despite at the same time, encouraging him to take a, a firmer, you know, more sort of inspirational Protestant uh, internationalist line. Um, and really throughout the period, until the 1690s, until um, the what we call now the financial revolution um, that seems to be accompanied by many revolutions in the 1690s in the form, in, in the structure of English governance, uh, all, all Stuarts suffer from a, a difficulty in raising money on the scale of their European counterparts. So I, I would I would see um, continuities there. I think Parliament um, changes. I mean, clearly um, people go to war in, in the name of Parliament in the mid seventeenth century, but Parliament as a institution doesn't meet every year again until after sixteen eighty nine. In this period, just to use a famous phrase of Conrad Russell's, you know, it's it's an event. It's not an institution, and when it's prorogued, usually for partisan reasons or dissolved, um, you know, contemporaries usually don't know when it will meet again. So I think there are continuities um, throughout the period. Perhaps some of the, you know, the radical changes are at one level, often in the ideological sphere. So a lot of the radicalism of the ideas that that are spawned during the civil wars, it can't be unthought. And you certainly see a clearer 
divisions of partisan allegiances by the second half of the 17th century, not necessarily saying that royalists and parliamentarians necessarily map directly onto Whigs and Tories, but the idea of sort of institutionalising political conflict um, is, is more common. But the mechanisms for that probably don't become clear until the 18th century. And what about the role of monarch? How did that change over this period? Of course, we had the Civil War, which was a huge moment in the history of the English monarchy. Yes. Um, I mean, and, and really that they're, they're at the centre of um, this history. I mean, I started writing this book from an interest in the Stuarts um, as rulers of England and how they were perceived. Um, and, you know, there's, a, there's a, a, an enormous range of different models that are talked about, particularly you know, as a result of or during the civil wars. Um William and Mary, by the end of the period, really do change uh, the way the you know the 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 scope of the monarchy. Partly because William is 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 unlike any previous Stuart monarch, um, a campaigning monarch who's who's away for much of of the period ca- um, on on military campaign, but who also has realised that the price to pay in England for um, capacity, you know, military capacity, polit- political financial capacity, is regular parliaments. Um, before that, it is it is more of a, an ancien regime monarchy, but one that doesn't have, as I said before, you know, the resources at the disposal, say, of Louis XIV's Versailles. Uh, which monarchs do you think did the best job at navigating this this unstable situation? And also, who did the worst? I mean, the answer to that one may possibly be very obvious. Um, well, um, There's an interesting irony that the monarchs who have quite a difficult time coming to the throne or whose accession is disputed are the ones who... So I'm thinking of sort of James VI and first who spends all the 1590s, you know, looking at the English throne, um, wanting to assert his right to succeed Elizabeth in a way that um, doesn't unleash um, a, a, a large European war. And yet he dies... In his bed, there are lots of rumours of poisoning and sort of foul play. But I mean, he 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 lasts on the throne. Uh, Charles the First's accession is never disputed. Um, he's not the monarch that everybody is prepared for. Um, and again, one of the sort of, uh, but he's the one who you know who ends up on the scaffold. And I think one of the other themes of the book, perhaps, is just the precarity that goes with dynastic succession. Um, I mean, a, a really sort of watershed moment is. Um, you know, the death of Prince Henry in 1612. This is the heir that James has prepared and who is who is seemingly, age 18, widely popular. I mean, one of the points of dying at 18 is that, you know, a lot of this is, is what if. But, you know, Charles was 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 the, the spare um, who wasn't initially assumed to, to, take, to, to take over. I think one of the other themes of the book as well is the hitherto, I would say, underestimated importance of the Palatine branch. So James comes with three children, Prince Henry, uh, who dies aged 18 in 1612, his daughter, Princess Elizabeth, who marries um, Frederick the next year and becomes the Winter Queen, but who then has a large number of children um, who are often seen by contemporaries, perhaps more than historians, as an alternative dynasty. So Charles I is not, as Prince of Wales, is not particularly healthy initially and also quite unpopular. And then you have this very sort of staunchly Protestant alternative dynasty who get ejected from Bohemia, but who are really quite close to hand in The Hague. Um, And it's interesting during the civil wars, uh, the oldest Palatine son, the elector uh, or the the aspirant elector, Charles Louis, sides with Parliament, but his two brothers, Prince Rupert famously and, and his younger brother, Prince Maurice, fight for their uncle Charles I. So some of those divisions that affected English families throughout the Civil War are reflected in the Palatine's own family themselves in terms of parliamentarian royalist divisions. 
Well, I wanted to ask you about the the role of the international context in the civil war, because obviously, of course, we often think of it as a very internalised conflict, but you suggest we need to look beyond that. Why? Well, certainly contemporaries fitted it into the sort of way in which continental Europe is being convulsed by war. And for those who wanted to see uh, confessional warfare everywhere, um, you know, there was plenty to see in Germany through the 1630s. And, and you know, some people felt that actually Charles I had been right to keep England out of this great sort of conflagration on the continent that was laying waste to so much territory. But then, you know, as historians like John Morrill have said, England then had its own wars of religion in the 1640s. Um, initially, there is a lot of continental involvement, or at least continental experience. So there's been a lot of work done, for example, on um, the way in which the Scottish Covenanting Army, a lot of their forces had continental experience in particularly the armies of Gustavus Adolphus and in Sweden and elsewhere. So initially, there is quite a lot of um, both expertise, um, personnel that's brought in. Once the dynamic starts to shift in favour of Parliament from the mid-1640s onwards, part of that is the Cromwellian view of the new model army as not being a, 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 an army made up of foreign strangers, that this is um, an English army fighting for England's interests and seeking a settlement with Charles that only extends to England. Um, and then that's sort of reflected very much in the way in which it's an English decision to put Charles I on trial and it's an English decision to execute him. And that's much to the horror of the Scots, even the Scots who have fought against him. How did foreign powers respond to the regicide? Was it universal horror? There is universal horror in 1649. This is why England is, is devil land. It's not only the execution of the monarch, it's the public execution of it and the sort of ceremonial that attached to it. I mean, another theme of the book as well is, is the frequency of assassination. Continental um, audiences and uh, are, are very used to the idea of monarchs perhaps being assassinated by a lone extremist, but the idea that you could sort of try and clothe what they see as a totally sacrilegious murder with some form of sort of judicial clothing is utterly unacceptable. What also underlies the horror, though, is also a sense that this is something that the English do. It was, after all, Elizabeth I that put Charles's grandmother, Mary Queen of Scots, on trial um, and ordered her execution, even though she was also a divinely ordained, as she saw it, monarch who had been a former uh, queen consort in France, as well as um, uh, a queen of Scotland. So there is a lot of sense, particularly in France, where the shock of Mary Queen of Scots' execution in 1587 had been you know, extensive, a shock, but a sense of, well, this is what the English do. I mean, this is why they cannot be trusted. This is why they are out of control. Yeah. I'm intrigued by something that you you said earlier, which was there were thoughts that then couldn't be unthought, as it were, after the Civil War. But of course, England did revert back to a monarchy. So how do you, how do you see that happening? You know, that dramatic hugely dramatic decision to to put the king on trial and execute him and then uh, just a few years later we get the monarchy back how does that reversion happen in your mind um well i think as i say i think it's quite easy in retrospect to concertina those 11 years um mm. For contemporaries, I imagine those 11 years felt uh, anything but, you know, there was a clear sort of mm. pathway. I mean, there's almost a bewildering form of constitutional forms um, through the 1650s. And in the end, it's almost a sort of constitutional exhaustion when after the death of Cromwell and the failure of the sort of protectorate under his son, Richard Cromwell, um, 
there's a sort of constitutional exhaustion and a look to familiar roots. Um, and it, you know, but it is supremely ironic that the same army that had put on trial Charles I is is the same army um, and parliament to invite back his son. There's been lots of sort of interesting work by sort of other historians as well on sort of the politics of memory in all of this as well. I mean, one of the real instabilities of the restoration is the extent to which uh, it depends on a sort of form of national amnesia, sort of everybody's sort of agreeing to put their differences to one side and start again. But at the same time, um, you know, the precarity of this is such that nobody can sort of forget. And I think Charles II is, is, is a monarch who's keenly aware that he will only remain on the throne for as long as his subjects really want him there. Um, and I think one of the themes of the middle chapters of sort of Devil Land as well is sort of just thinking about the impact of 11 years of exile on Charles II as a monarch. I mean, not many English monarchs have spent either sort of that much time um, on the continent, just looking at the ways in which different um, continental courts and um, uh, structures operate, um, as well as, you know, the sort of very dramatic moments of the civil wars, such as um, Charles's escape from Worcester, just spending time, you know, among their ordinary subjects, literally fearing for their lives. Um, and in some ways, Charles II is either very sort of lucky or very skilled at not jumping at the wrong time. So throughout the 1650s, clearly the royalists have to do enough to stimulate some level of royalist support um, throughout the 1650s, but not rush back, you know, not, not relocate the court uh, every time there's a sort of small sealed knot rising. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think it's a, I think it's a, it, it, it's an event, the restoration that, that can be explained in terms of the different sort of shifting power interests and, and a desperate search for stability and a, and a sort of exhaustion. At the same time, there's nothing inevitable or very likely about what happens. Yeah. You've spoken about the fear of a popish plot that ran throughout the century, but I just wanted to ask you in a bit more depth about the role of religion um, in shaping England's character at this time. How would you, how would you characterise England's religious temperament, I guess, at this time? Really very mixed. I mean, one often thinks about a sort of um, but halfly for or halfly reformed church. And one of the interesting um, dimensions to the succession debate, such as it is in the 1590s, is also a sense that whichever monarch does succeed Elizabeth will have a dramatic impact on the, the way in which the English church thereafter goes. Perhaps few expect James to do what he does, which is then summon a, an entire sort of academic conference about it. But that's very much sort of in keeping with James's approach. Um, and the Hampton Court Conference and many of the um, divisions that emerge afterwards just show just how wide is the spectrum of religious opinion in the British Isles. And that's a, a, another challenge that the Stuarts face. That's the theme throughout Devil Land that isn't so challenging for many of their European counterparts, which is ruling a multiple monarchy with such different religious complexions in each of its states. So even if one thinks of England, say, as having a majority Episcopalian uh, population with pockets of um, support for Puritan models and pockets of support for sort of Catholic recusancy, a very different religious complexion obtains in Scotland, where there's greater support for uh, further reformation along Presbyterian lines, as well as in Ireland, where there's a majority Catholic population and the ways in which those different religious um, divisions and complexions play out in the civil wars is, is again, another complicating factor. 
And it's always the case that there'll be a minority element in each country that really wants their own country to follow the path of one of the other members of the sort of Stuart multiple monarchy. And I do think, you know, that's an almost impossible inheritance for any early modern monarch to be able to rule satisfactorily. Um, This era is often spoken about as the one of gunpowder, fire and plague, all of which, of course, focus primarily on London. And the importance of London is something that you do talk about in the book. Why was it such um, a central hub at this time of events that affected the entirety of England? There's been really interesting demographic analysis of just the sheer numbers of people who at some point in their lives in the 17th century would have spent time in London. So it's a, it's a, it's a city that's growing with astonishing speed. Um I mean, worrying speed. Most most Stuart rulers think that London is is part of the problem. That London has become over oversized. Um, it is it is too large. Um, you know, at the beginning of the period, um, it's 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 a large um, English, uh, you know, large sort of European capital. But by the end, it it's eclipsed Paris and Naples and all the other sort of super cities. Um, it's a very itinerant population, so people will spend a lot of time in London um, at some point in their lives, but not necessarily live there. It's a very literate population. Um, it's not one in which the Stuarts own a lot of property, <laughs> so it's not somewhere that the Stuarts can really rely on either. And I think that's another theme of um, the book is the sort of very difficult and and often outrightly adversarial relationship between particularly the city of London, um, you know, the square mile and the Stuart monarchy. Um, Charles uh, Charles I sort of famously leaves London in 1642 after he fails to arrest five members in the House of Commons. And he only returns to London in, um, you know, in the weeks before his execution and losing control of your capital city, um, you know, is is a major factor in the civil wars. Uh, That city then has it, it has the opportunity to be rebuilt from scratch as a result of the great fire and again it's tempting to sort of think about the ways in which Charles II might have been a sort of an architect of a new London and a new monarchy sort of rebuilding the whole monarchical structure from scratch but as we know you know in the end sort of commercial imperatives mean that actually London is pretty much built along its old existing lines it's just built primarily out of you know sort of non-flammable materials where possible what do you think that we have got wrong about this era of history traditionally? Not sure that people get get things wrong. I think each mm-hmm. generation tends to sort of, you know, view different periods through the light of of their own sort of preconceptions. I think I'm I'm always somebody who who thinks that you know historians can be a bit precious in saying you know it's it's not contemporary concerns that are you know d- directing what i do you know i have this sort of pure approach i think i think we're all in- inescapably um conditioned by anxieties of our time i i think though there has been a tendency to, to underestimate uncertainty and contingency and fragility this doesn't necessarily mean it's all counterfactual history it doesn't all you know this could have all been so different if but it really is remarkable the range of foreign influence in 17th century England, both nefarious, you know, both sort of negative, but also very sort of positive as well. I think the the openness of England is something that both alarms um, foreign powers as well as sort of tempts them. Um, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a real opportunity for foreign meddling. And I think it's not really that we've got it wrong. I just think there's such a wealth of material that perhaps hasn't really been looked at 
as fully as it might be until very, very recently with the rise of what's called the new diplomatic history. But, you know, diplomatic history, military history, a lot of these were often studied in sort of silos um, and diplomatic history was often conceived of quite narrowly. Whereas I think what I really wanted to do is is put diplomats and, and monarchs sort of at the centre of the story to understand, um, you know, what impact this had on England more, more widely. You spoke there about silos. And I think even in, in popular history, in public history, there's a tendency to divide some of these things up, isn't there? So we have the Tudors and Elizabeth I, it's very separate. We have the Civil War, we have the Stuarts, we have the Restoration Era, and we quite often view them very separately. But what do you think that looking at all of these things together shows us? The importance sometimes of of history in contemporaries' lives. I mean, it's really remarkable in 1688 how much, uh, you know, contemporaries were aware that this was the anniversary of 1588. And, um, you know, would this be another moment of sort of providential Protestant deliverance or or was this, you know, a a different type of invasion? Um, You know, many of the um, motivations for domestic decisions such as supporting James VI and I in 1603 or supporting William and Mary when they came to the throne in 1688 or 1689 or perhaps voting for Anglo-Scottish Union in 1707 were conditioned by fears of foreign um, intervention that, that people didn't want, um, you know, that, that James II and VII was just too close to Louis XIV. So therefore, um, you know, supporting William and Mary would be a bulwark against that. And I think probably we've tended to, as you say, um, either look at sort of domestic policy as being only of domestic, you know, domestic um, provenance, that these are sort of very just solely internal concerns. Um And yet, really, foreign influence and foreign involvement has always governed both foreign policy, obviously, but also domestic policy. Finally, I just wanted to ask you, how was England a different place at the end of this century that you're looking at in 1688, a century earlier in 1588? I'm not sure it's a different place. I mean, there's certainly, I mean, because again, with 1688, one tends to take on board all of the, um, everything that we know about what happened thereafter in that Mary and William, you know, created, um, one might say more stability, although actually, you know, the 1690s were a pretty terrifying period to live through one of warfare. Um, I think in 1688, nothing can be taken for certain. Um, you know, Mary provides some fig leaf of legitimacy for William's invasion, but when she dies, um, I don't think anybody would have underestimated Jacobite intentions or assassination plots thereafter. So I don't think that fundamental sort of insecurity and uncertainty about the future has gone. There's a much more sophisticated um, level of public debate and partisan alignment. I mean, print has has expanded massively. There is a recognition too about, um, you know, the mechanics of warfare and the kinds of infrastructure overhaul that will be required, particularly financially, to fund the kind of warfare um, that that William is seeking and that, that England gets engaged in. A lot of the uncertainties, I mean, you know, all the uncertainties that go with, you know, Queen Anne's reproductive troubles, you know, for want of a better word. I mean, that that hasn't really changed. Um, and a lot of the nervousness around 
the succession to Queen Anne and the de- you know the decision to place the succession in again a, uh, a descendants of the Palatine branch, the Hanoverians, uh, is an attempt again to secure England's Protestant um, settlement. Um, you know, to, to secure it as much as possible against um, Catholic overthrow or, or foreign intervention. That was Claire Jackson. Her book, Devil Land, England Under Siege, 1588 to 1688, is available now, published by Alan Lane. I spoke to Claire for the November issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also includes features on George III, medieval trials by combat, World War II tank battalions and the unexpected history of windows. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow when Manan Ahmed Asif will be talking about that of Hindustan and revealing how it came to be replaced with the modern idea of India.